Mike sucked! I hate him! And may the Christian Lord guide my hand against your Roman popery! And they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! We're on a mission from God. Entitled you want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Maybe we should chug on over to Mamby Pamby Land where maybe we can find some self-confidence for you, you jackwagon! Coming to you live from his padded cell high atop Bethel Church, the most heralded, the most despised talk show in all of human history. This is the talk show Hell Hates. This is Pastor Mike Online. Coming to you live from our top secret broadcasting bunker. This is Pastor Mike and I'm online live with you today. Good to be with you. Um, I have reached a decision that is, uh, I believe, going to be beneficial to me. And, uh, you know, probably in the long run, it'll be beneficial to everybody else. This is deer season in Missouri, rifle season. Started Saturday morning at 6.30-ish because they say that um, you can't, legally shoot a deer until like 30 minutes after sunrise, whatever whatever time that is. Uh, but everybody knows if you're sitting out in your stand and one walks by and you can see it, nobody wants to let that one go in hopes that they won't have to sit there the whole rest of the day waiting for another one to come by. A bird, a deer in the hand is worth a deer. So um, anyway, I didn't go Saturday. Um, My son Caleb went, uh, and um, one of my daughters was supposed to go, but she couldn't. And so I am going to take... Thursday, Friday, and Saturday off, and I'm going to deer hunt. Uh, And I made that decision, believe it or not, I made that decision uh, the other day. I was taking our trash can down to the road, and as I'm walking back, I smell the scent of all those autumn leaves that have fallen. And they're laying all over the, the grounds of the woods. And I love that smell. It brings back good memories. Um, it brings back times of just relaxing out in the woods and just sitting there and thinking about God and thinking about creation and sometimes not, not caring if I kill a deer or not. Don't care. So I've got my trophy. It's hanging in my office. And uh, I don't know that I'll ever see or get to kill one as big as that one was. So uh, 
I'm just out there for the fun of it. Uh, buck or doe, if I see one, I'm going to try to nail it. And for those of you who are, um, how, what's the word? I don't want to use a word to describe you. I don't want to be judgmental. But I have been sharply criticized. I remember when I took Matthew, his first year deer hunting, and he shot a little buck. And I posted a picture of it with my son on Facebook. And some of these Facebook Nazis came unglued. They're like, that is so cruel. That is so, how, how does he call himself a Christian and do that kind of stuff? And I, and I wrote and I said, you know, I can't believe this. It's a, not only a, a, a right that we have in the state of Missouri, um, it is a blessing from God. And God does not in any way um, reprove man for killing such animals as is required for his uh, sustenance, for clothing, for leather goods, or whatever you can harvest out of a, a cow, a goat, or, or a deer. God does not reprove man for that. In other words, he's not in trouble. I'm not going to get in trouble. And I said, uh, not only did my grandfather, great-grandfather, teach my grandfather how to deer hunt, my grandfather taught my father how to hunt, and my dad was an outstanding hunter. Uh, it didn't take him long at all. 7.30, usually opening day, 7.30, he's bagging a buck. And I'm going, how come I can't do that? And then he taught me everything that he could so that by 16, I'm bagging my first eight-point buck. And so I teach my sons, Matthew and Caleb, where to be, what to do, how to do it, how to know this, how to know that. And both of them have killed bucks and does, and they're doing it on their own now. They don't need my help anymore. Not only is that a a time-honored thing, a tradition of dad's hand. The meat is almost zero fat. Deer is good, lean meat, and it's not genetically modified. How's that one, huh? So anyway, uh, I just I just don't. If you got something to say about it, go ahead and say it. I don't care. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to take... Uh, I'm going to take three days and uh, just hit the woods and hide out in the woods for a few days. And, and it's good medicine for me. It is. Uh, I like to, before my boys got old enough, um, I, would, I would go by myself all the way down to um, a little town called Caulfield, Missouri. C-A-U-L Field. And... Um, Brother Ron Dagonia, he was a cattle rancher then at that uh, down in that area, and he owned a bunch of acreage, and there was deer aplenty out there. But I would go down there just to get alone for a few days after, you know, handling all the pressure and 
dealing with people and so on and so on. Um, sometimes I'd go down there and when I set up camp and sit down and eating a little lunch or something like that, I'd start to break down and cry. Um, we are already, it looks like, having problems with the feed. Let me uh, check something real quick. Uh, well, we'll just have to pray again, keep the feed going. So anyway, um, I will I will be gone. I will be absent. Uh, I'll be here tomorrow night, and I'm here right now. Uh, but after that, I'll be absent for about three days. And um, I I wish I wish you all of God's blessings while I'm gone. Read your Bible. Read your read your own Bible while I'm gone. All right. Now uh, I'm gonna. Uh, do so, let me let me fill you in on Sunday, and I'm going to use that to segue into what we're going to talk about today. Um, Sunday morning, and it did not surprise me one bit. Um, Sunday morning, as we began singing our first congregational song for our Sunday school assembly, um, the power went out. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. And um, I thought maybe, you know, a car had, you know, driven into a power pole and knocked the power line down or something had happened along the network. Well, a couple of our guys got, got up and they went outside and they saw that there is a there is an electric pole that feeds the church right at the back corner of the church building. And um, I knew how close that pole was to the building. Well, uh, they came in and said that the transformer had exploded and caught on fire. Now, when everybody heard the word explode and fire, a lot of people jumped up. And I, I knew I had to try to calm everybody down for a minute and I said, everybody, everybody just sit down for a minute and, and let's, let's keep calm here. So some of the other guys got up. We, we actually have a family that just started visiting our church. He is a fireman in one of the local uh, fire brigades in this area. So anyway, uh, they went out to, to look at what was going on. When I looked out the window, I could see what was going on. I went back behind the pulpit and I said, because I sort of forecasted what what would what the day was going to be like. Uh, I knew the fire department had was on their way. I knew that the electric company would have to be called. So I said to everybody, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you to your vehicles. And that basically meant we're done. And um, so anyway, the building was cleared. Nobody was hurt. There was no, no rush or anything like that. And uh, the fire department came out, and there really wasn't anything to put out. The fire had burned itself out on the, as far as what was on the pole is concerned. And then later on, the, the uh, electric company came out and repaired whatever it was, and uh, it didn't take them long. Like I, I thought, I thought they would take them hours and hours and hours. 
just because there's a higher rate of pay on Sundays for union electric workers. And uh, so I figured it would uh, take them longer than it did, but it didn't. But everything is fixed, and we're all in good shape. Now, the message went... When everybody saw me after all of this had taken place, I was not in a good place. And they said, are you okay? I said, no, I'm not. I'm angry. Why? I said, if you would see my notes for this morning's sermon, you would understand why this has happened. And I'm not going to say much now, but I'm going to tell you that that message, I believe with all my heart, that message would have had a serious impact on some people's lives who were there. And that's all I'm going to say. Um... And so it didn't surprise me. The first time I ever preached and the electric went out was when I was in Bible college. And I had worked on a seminar dealing with rock and roll music. And a guy that I knew from Missouri who did that in different churches, he had a cassette tape that had examples of of like the lyrics in songs, songs that were drug-related, songs that were occult-related, songs that were that had backward masking in it, if you remember that. So he sent me a copy of the tape, and, and so I get into the message. I'm, sing, I'm preaching it at my home church there in Oklahoma, a little church in Moore, Oklahoma, and um, so on a Sunday evening, and about 30 minutes into the message, the electricity goes completely off. And uh, I'm not really able to finish the message the way I wanted to because I had a lot of examples on that cassette and there was no electricity. So that was like the first time I've experienced that. And I went, do I really think the devil had something to do with this? Yeah, I do. And there's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind. Based on the content of that message, there's no doubt that that was done on purpose. Now, do I still believe in God's sovereignty? Well, why wouldn't I? It happened, didn't it? That means that God allowed it because it serves a some greater role in God's overall plan. And so I trust God that he knew what he was doing, that he did the right thing, and I believe I can already see some of why it happened. And I'm just going to keep that to myself. So I'm going to go back over the message that I preached last Sunday, not two days ago, but nine days ago because I I am 100% convinced 
that more people have become addicted to various things in this world, a greater, let's say, a greater percentage of people, um, a greater, certainly a greater number of people overall. There's now 8 billion people living on planet Earth. That, that just rolled over a couple days ago. I saw the headlines. Certainly a greater number of people who are addicted to certain things. The message that I'm going to preach next Sunday actually has, uh, well, you know what? Let me see if I can pull up. I'm kind of giving away my message for next Sunday a little bit. But let me show you what I believe are things that people get addicted to, hooked on. They develop lifestyles that are based around things that they do on a regular and consistent basis. So let me kind of let a little bit of the cat out of the bag. This will be for next Sunday. And I'll show you what I mean by that. Number one, it is bondage to sin. And understand that if sin did not feel good, to the flesh, no one would do it. No one would. Bondage to sin in all its forms, that it always makes the flesh feel good. I want you to consider just for a moment um, curse words. Why do people say curse words? Um, and we can't we can't say words like baloney or fedora or uh, amalgamation. We can't say words like that, and they have the same effect as curse words do. For some reason, and maybe only God knows the answer to this. For some reason. When we let out of our mouth curse words, words that have become curse words, there is a rush that we get, a, a, like an adrenaline rush or like a, like a high almost. In other words, we, we hit our thumb with a hammer uh, or we stab our toe in something in the house or one of the one of the kids comes by and whacks us on the leg just playing and it makes us mad and we want to say something we can't say pretzel and it have the same effect we can't do it it just doesn't feel good it's not until we curse that we get the satisfaction and it lets out some of the uh, 
violence and some of the anger that we have built up in us because of whatever it was that initiated that. And thus then it becomes how we speak. If you noticed, those of you who have been alive for more than, let's say, 40, 50 years on this world, if you can go back to, let's say, the 70s, the 60s and 70s, and hear people curse, you know, as part of what they did, they would use, you know, words like hell or uh, damn, because, and I'm saying words that are in the Bible. Um, and that would be pretty close as far as normal conversation, that would be pretty close to the limit. Every now and then, and I'm talking in rare cases, they would use worse words. You know what I'm saying? The F word. Nowadays, man, woman, and child cannot speak a normal rational set of sentences without using the F word for nearly everything. It's going to be an adjective. It's going to be an adverb. It's going to be uh, a, a verb. It's going to be a noun. It's going to be an exclamation. That one word has so pervaded the speech of certain people, most people, that they don't even realize it because in their group of people, that's accepted. But if I'm with one of my children or one of my grandchildren now, and I hear people talking like that in front of my kids, I will, I will very politely say, hey, um, can, you, can you not use that language? we got little kids here. Most people will say, hey, I'm sorry, okay? But as far as telling them to quit using that word, it's almost like they can't. And the, I do believe that it, it can become an addiction because of the fact that using those words does in some way release either um, adrenaline or endorphins. Endorphins is like morphine. Morphine feels pretty good, and so does saying curse words. And I will say to you, if, if you say them on a regular basis, you have a problem, and it will become very difficult for you to not say them in the future. You'll need help. Okay? Uh, let me go back to this very quickly. Uh, bondage to sin or the mortal body. Addictions. Drug addictions. We're talking illegal drugs. Marijuana, and still in some states, is illegal. In the rest of the states, it should be illegal. Should be. 
Um, we're talking methamphetamine, marijuana, and folks, those of you who live in marijuana states where now it is legal for you to use marijuana um, for recreational purposes. Um, there is still, in the state of Missouri, they in Missouri they voted it to be legal, thinking that that would do away with the street dealers. No, it hasn't. It has increased the street dealers. They are taking marijuana that they buy illegally, and that marijuana, nine times out of ten, has been laced with fentanyl. Fentanyl, as you know, is a drug that they give to patients who are just coming up out of surgery. And it is a very potent and strong pain reliever. I remember um, after I had uh, my shoulder surgery, and I knew I was going to be in a lot of pain over that. When I woke up from surgery, I remember hearing a nurse saying, are you in pain? And I said, yes, in a lot of pain. And I can remember her giving me fentanyl, and it just felt like fentanyl were two hands that were enclosing my shoulder wounds and just bathing them in love. Okay? That's what it felt like because instantly the pain went away. And I'm like, oh, that's good. But fentanyl kills. It doesn't take much to kill. And I'll tell you why they put fentanyl on marijuana. It increases its potency so that you get a bigger, deeper high. And you get this overall overwhelming feeling of good. And it's addictive. Because once you feel that way, you don't want to smoke something without fentanyl in it and not feel that, not get the same feeling. You're going to think, well, that was a dud. All they did, all they did by legalizing marijuana in Missouri is they increased the criminal aspect of it. Because like I said, if you can buy marijuana with fentanyl in it and you use it for a while and then you go to one of these dispensaries and get regular marijuana there with no fentanyl in it, you're going to go, that's a, that's a dud. That's going to take me three times the amount of gummies here. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's dangerous. It is, marijuana has always been a gateway drug, and it is now a gateway drug. The stupid people in the state of Missouri who ever voted that in, I believe there's a curse on them. Right now, I believe it. Alcohol. Don't need to go there, but I'm there. Alcohol has not done society any good, ever. There are limited biblical uses for it, but aside from that, 
It is a destroyer. It is a destroyer of families. It is a destroyer of a man's work and labor, something he's given his life to his and his hard work. He can work at a job. He could be the best uh, craftsman that there is in his line of work in for 30 years. And the bottle will absolutely destroy that right in front of him. Destroy his home, his marriage, his children, his grandchildren, possible prison, because you killed somebody on a DUI, prescription drugs. I know all about it. I showed up to a pain relief clinic. I wasn't expecting they were going to do this. But just in the first visit, they put me on Percocet, 10 milligrams, three times a day. I didn't need that. I didn't need it. But I didn't know just how addictive they were. And I didn't know at the time. I know it now. But at the time, they didn't tell me that after I've after the um, the opiates in there, they cover over your pain receptors in your brain. Well, after a while, your brain decides to build new pain receptors. So now that one 10 milligram pill that you took at noon, it's not enough. You need to take two of them. And then your brain builds more pain receptors. And I was up to 10 Percocets at a time. Now, you're only given like, what, 90 per month? And if you're taking 10 at a time, how long is it going to take before you run out? Then you're going through withdrawals that make everything worse. Because now, instead of having your normal pain receptors, you've got all these other pain receptors that your brain has built for you, and they're not getting any uh, pain relief whatsoever. So you're almost crippled because of, of the, the amount of pain that you're in. And that was a nightmare for me. But I can tell you, God turned that to good because uh, once my pain management doctor figured out what was going on, he sent me to a clinic. And um, it was part of my insurance program. They, were, they, they said, you got to do this. And I had to go to a group meeting uh, three times a week for two hours a day. And I can tell you, I learned more. Not so much about addictions and how they work. But I, could, I learned more about what compels people to drink, to turn to drugs, and so on. God had me there for a reason. And I realized it about the second or third uh, meeting that I had. God was like, Mike, settle down. I've got you here for a reason. You're going to see it. And um, the things that I learned. You see, I was there and I told everybody, I said, my, my trigger here for, for this stuff is pain. If I'm in serious pain, I you don't think of anything except being out of pain. And I learned from those people that there's different types of pain. 
that people go through. Some of it's physical pain in their body. Some of it's emotional pain. Where everybody who mattered in their life hurt them in some way, shape, or form. Young ladies that were there that have been bounced around and abused by just about every man or teenager that they've ever had in their life. And they're supposed to live some normal life now where everything's fine. No, they do drugs to just deal with the pain. But regardless of why you do it, and and I think, you know, when I think about the alcohol, you know, we brought guys home from World War II, and they saw the horrors of the Third Reich. They, like my uncle, saw the horrors of what Japanese soldiers do to their enemies and to themselves. They saw the horrors of that war. And a lot of those guys, patriots, celebrated and adored by their countrymen. You won the war. Victory, victory, victory for America. Since those guys were of that macho, men don't cry uh, type of culture, the only way that a lot of those guys could deal with the things that they experienced, the things that they saw, and the things that they did to other people was to soothe it over with alcohol. Drugs weren't popular back in the 1940s and early 50s, so that alcohol was all they knew. My uncle, I feel I love him. I honored him as a World War II Marine, but he was a drunk. He was a drunk. And I always felt sorry for him. Um, Then you brought guys home from Vietnam. And by then, the whole drug scene had taken over, and a lot of these guys in Vietnam, who were in Vietnam, were already doing heavy drugs. And they come home with no help whatsoever. And then you guys got, you have guys coming home from Afghanistan and Iraq, Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, And that's when they finally started admitting that there was such a thing as post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. And finally started doing something about it, doing something for these guys. But with a lot of them, it was too late. They're committing suicide in ever-increasing rates. They're messed up because they saw horrors over there. more More than one soldier having to shoot a child because they strapped bombs to a child and told him to go run into that group of soldiers over there. And they had to kill children because children were combatants. And it's just pure evil. 
in that part of the world. Absolute pure evil in that part of the world. So anyway, yeah, there's reasons why people do this stuff. But they're still wrong. Then we get into fornication of all kinds. Adultery. Fornication. Lasciviousness. Uh, filthy jesting. Uh, pornography. Um, child problems. YouTube don't like certain things said, so. And I'm going to be kind of cautious around this area because I want it to stay on YouTube. I want people to hear it. Uh, I follow some um, some uh, YouTube channels where these guys are sort of like Chris Hansen. They they get involved. They get into uh, chat groups and some of these apps that people use to find some hookup. And they pose as like a 12-year-old boy or 13-year-old girl or whatever. And they know that they can't just say, hey, I'm 13-year-old girl and I want so-and-so. They can't do that. But they said, Dude, we don't have to. All we have to do is show up and say we're 13. And all of a sudden, these guys are crowding in saying, hey, baby, would you like a date with me or whatever? And we're talking about grown men. And these men don't realize, some of them don't, some of them probably do and don't care, that just the very act of speaking to someone who is underage in one of these apps, you've already committed a felony. Okay? You've, al you've already gotten jail time. Uh, but anyway, they'll catch these guys. They'll, they'll, they'll set up a meeting, and these guys will meet them at Walmart with a camera, or they'll meet them at, at, at uh, Starbucks, or, you know, some, some other place. And they'll confront them and say, here, we have all the chat logs. Now let's talk. And these guys will spill the beans and just tell everything that they did. Everything. And I am seeing a trend now that I just, I cannot fathom. But one, one guy they, they went after and he was, he admitted he had thousands of pictures on his phone. And when they asked him what they were, these guys would, in many cases, say they belonged to people two to three years old. And I'm like, that is so abhorrent. But that's the depths of depravity that that leads to. Listen to me. If, if, if you drink your first beer and you liked what the alcohol did, then eventually you don't drink beer anymore. You go for whiskey, vodka, whatever. You go to something stronger. 
Everclear. Okay? If you smoke marijuana, after a while, marijuana's not enough. So you're going to move up the ladder. You're going to go to heroin or you're going to go to uh, methamphetamine or, God forbid, uh, angel death, PCP or any of the hallucinogenics. You go for these better highs and, and you get deeper into the depravity. It's the same way. Same way. We look back at what Hugh Hefner put into his magazine some, what was that, 1950, well, let's say it's 1955, I don't know. Somewhere around in there, 55, 65, 75, 85, 95, 2005, that's 50 years, 2015, that's 60 years. Here we are, almost 70 years away from what Hugh Hefner put out, and Hugh Hefner put out Things that the that the whole country went. That's that's just smut. That's just that's this. We should not allow that in our communities. But it's grown. It went way beyond that now. The depravity did, and the need, the desire for something far more filthy and vulgar. No one ever says, okay, I think this is enough for me. Listen, it's chains of bondage, and that bondage, that strong, that strange woman is her steps lead right down to hell. Violence. People addicted to violence. Uh, a punching bag, it, it, they are a fist, and when you're a fist, everything is a punching bag. Your wife, your kids. Your neighbors are scared of you. People at work are scared of you. Your own parents are scared of you. Because all, the first thing you seek is violence. What'd you say about me? I'll tear your head off. And you mean it too. You mean it too. That's, that's as much, that's as addictive as whiskey is. Gambling. Or addicted, addicted to more money. You don't have to gamble to be addicted to the gain of money. The love of money is the root of all evil. Why did they legalize marijuana in the state of Missouri? Was it so everybody could have a good time? Was it so that we could sell more potato chips? No, to tax it. Love of money. We're going to tax sin. We tax... uh, we tax gambling, um, gambling income. That was the whole way they sold it to the state of Missouri, these riverboat casinos. Oh, that'll bring money in for our schools. And you, we don't have school taxes anymore. We're still paying school taxes, by the way. Anyway, gambling is an addiction. People get hooked on it. I, there was a, a church I know out in Oklahoma. And I met this lady. I thought she was a nice lady. She was the church secretary. And uh, she was there every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revival meeting, camp meeting. She was always there. Well, the pastor noticed that 
I mean, the, it looked like the offerings were good coming in, but it just seemed like they were just, you know, not getting above water, not able to pay all their bills. Well, he started looking into everything and noticed money was missing. And when he announced that he had found money missing and was going to, you know, find out where it all went to, this secretary went home, told her husband that she had taken somewhere upwards of $40,000 from the church because she was the one counted all the money and made the deposits. And you know what happened? You know what it was? She got hooked into these Indian casinos and spent all the money she had, and she had debts, so she had to get money. She got money from the church tithes and offerings, and she would take that to casino hoping that it would build and she'd be able to pay it back. And Oh, I'm going to pay the church back, and I'm going to do this. I'm no, it ended up being $40,000 that she stole that the casinos have now. And when it became known to the pastor and everybody else, she tried to kill herself. She took a bunch of pills, tried to kill herself because she couldn't deal with the shame of what she had done. And that's that's just the tip of the iceberg, people. Um. By the way, let me go back to this fornication deal. If you remember, there was a church in Oklahoma, a free will Baptist church that I knew of. I went to school with some kids from that church. The pastor and his wife were hanging around this other guy and having parties if you know what i mean with this other guy both the pastor and his wife and the wife decided she liked the other guy more than she did her husband she told the other guy oh my husband he don't love me he hates me he treats me bad calls me names oh this is so terrible so terrible oh i wish he were dead will you kill him for me and the other guy said oh, okay sure and she said okay he's in mexico right now on a on a mission trip, when he comes back, he's going to be real tired. That'd be the time to do it. And so sure enough, sure enough, this guy comes home from his mission trip, gets in bed, goes to sleep. Um, she left the back door unlocked. This guy came in through the back door, took this guy's own gun, and shot him three times. Then when the police started investigating, they figured everything out. They had receipts from the hotel that they went to and everything. And they were just spilling the beans on each other. That church, it just nearly destroyed that church. But it probably just started out with that guy or that gal or whatever peeping at something on the Internet. And that's where it ended up. Shopping and material possessions is, a, is, a, is addicting. It's a huge problem. There are people who hoard 
so much junk. They'll buy things brand new, throw them in their house, and forget about them. Cartons never opened up, packaging never torn. People are just shop and shop and shop, and that, that fills some kind of need that they have in them. I don't get that. But they just buy, 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 and buy, and buy. And I'll tell you what, America is addicted to shopping. If you don't believe that, we're already Black Friday shopping. Now, uh, look at this, religious experiences. Whether you're Catholic or you're a Baptist or you're a Pentecostal, or you're a charismatic, or you're a Presbyterian. You can get addicted to religious, man-made experiences. You can become addicted by way of certain devils that are called seducing spirits. You can get addicted to religious experiences. You can go to a, a, a church that does a, 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 a praise and worship thing where everybody's swaying. Everybody's got their eyes closed. People are crying all over the place. they got their hands up in the air. Everybody's doing the same thing. Oh, we're worshiping God. Oh, look at what we're doing. Oh, God's. And what the, I dealt with a lady. She was a pastor's wife one time. And I was preaching a revival for this man in, at, at his, his church. And he's several years older than me. And he asked me, he said, I got a problem. He said, can you help me and my wife? They come up and talk to me. And he said that one Sunday, his wife took over the whole church service. Because she was up there singing. And she got mad because people in her opinion, we're not really worshiping God in the music. So she walked around that church house accusing people to their face of, of being cold, dead Christians, not worshiping God. She said, if we would worship God the way we're supposed to, God would give us this, God would give us love, God would give us peace. And, a, and I she had come from a broken home. Her mom was a follower of Joyce Myers. So I knew that was a problem already. And I said, let me tell you what I think. I think that you have become addicted to feelings and emotions. You may have had a service one time where something came over you and the doodad stood up on your neck and you cried and wept and you, you hallelujahed and, and you just had joy in you. And you got addicted to that. You got hooked on that. And you felt like that if you worshiped God in just the right way, by saying the right words or by singing the songs repeatedly, or by playing the music at a certain uh, volume or at a certain speed or whatever, that God then would release down to you another injection of heroin, spiritual heroin to you. Because that's basically what, what it is. You're looking for another hit of spiritual heroin from God. 
And when it doesn't happen, you first blame yourself and say, well, I'm not good enough. Then you start blaming everybody else and saying they're the problem. They're why we're not getting this. And I mean, she did. She took over that whole church service from her husband and went around accusing everybody in the church to their face that they weren't spiritual enough. And that's why that church wasn't growing. And that's why that church will never have revival. And that's why we'll just never get anybody saved in this church because you're the ones not worshiping God enough. And it's works-based witchcraft and this is why these campus churches are popping up all over the place is that they are they figured out a way to give everybody another dose of spiritual heroin from sunday to sunday and people get that or they pretend that they've got it but it's, it's the same, it gets addicting. And they feel like if it doesn't happen, that particular service, well, I, obviously I've done something wrong. Obviously I, I've not serving God the way I should, or I don't have enough faith in God, or I didn't have enough faith in God, or we, we should have sang Let It Rain 20 more times. We was, if we would have hit that 60th round of Let It Rain, Let It Rain, then surely God would have released this to us and we would have gotten this spiritual hit again. And listen, I, I don't have problem with emotions in, in church. I don't have a problem with somebody having a good old crying spell down at the altar. I don't have a problem with any of that. I don't have a problem with people raising their hands, clapping their hands, shouting hallelujah. But my salvation is a fact, not a feeling. My status with God is a matter of record, not just a matter of, oh, I feel it now. Oh, yes, amen. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, that's so good. I can accept the fact that what the Bible says is true without pretending like I'm at a baseball game. And this is what I hear from people, too. Well, I bet if you were at a ball game right now, you'd be shouting like crazy at that ball game. And I tell you, Jesus is better than some ball game. See, that all sounds good. But how true is it? We are required in our worship to worship God in spirit and in truth and leave the flesh out of it completely. Now, if something hits you just the right way and you can have joy, then so be it. But whether or not I have an emotional response to something God has done does not negate what God has done. He still did it, and I'm still thankful. Religious experiences, people, some people are addicted to fame or pride. They want all eyes on them. I'm going to add something else in here. Control freaks. You, being, you having to be in control of everything that goes on, whether you're really a part of it or not, but you want to be in control of it, 
no matter what happens in the family, no matter what happens at work, no matter what happens at church, it had better go your way. You had better, you're going to dictate to everybody else how they should be and what they should be doing. And I listen, I've dealt with people like that all my ministry. Think that they had to be in control of everything. And I just, sometimes I get mean and I just absolutely do the exact opposite of what they want me to do simply because I know that they're not all about nothing but control acceptance by others that's that's a dangerous one that is an an issue I'll, I'll just be honest that's part of me is I deal with I want to be accepted by people now years ago it was pretty bad. And I was always looking to see whether or not my Sunday morning sermon affected somebody right then and there. And if you want to ask me why I don't have an altar call every Sunday morning or whatever, it's pretty much that reason. Because I did. I got to where. I was gauging my own personal success on whether I could get people to the altar or not. There are some churches that when the preaching's done, automatically people just flush down to the altar. Now, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. And maybe that's just how they, how they do things. That's fine with me. But that is not the gauge upon which I can determine whether or not something that I preached is going to work or that God's going to use it somehow, some way. I am interested. I want God to use me. I want God to use my messages. But it doesn't have to be today. He can bless it 10 years from now. In fact, I know that happened because people say, Pastor, I went back... Way back when you got first got started, listen to those early messages. Man, I tell you what, I was blessed by that. I didn't do that. God did that. God did that. Government slavery. Government slavery. Now, if you if you need uh, uh, disability income because you absolutely cannot work, then so be it. I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. But we have gotten lazy in this country. Every, you have a lot of people who are hoping to get on that government lottery. Ooh, honey, looky here. I got my disability check for the first time. Woohoo! I tell you what, let's do. Let's take this money and let's go cash it and let's go buy stuff because I promised you I was going to redo the whole south end of the house if I got this money. So I'm, I need to get to work now and start building the house. <laughs> That's how people are. They can't wait to get on disability. Can't wait to get on welfare. And I'll just say this. Government money has a tendency 
to bring chains with it. So just imagine this for a minute. Let's say, and I remember this came up when George Bush was talking about uh, giving out um, vouchers for private Christian schools. And I had determined already, we had a Christian school at the time, and I had determined already that if they did come out with that, I wasn't going to participate in it. Um, and we probably wouldn't have had a school then, but I wasn't going to participate in it because generally when they give it out the first year, it's all free and clear. They give it out the second year, it's all free and clear, and they get you hooked on it. Because you're getting, what, three to $4,000 per student per year? That's pretty good money. You got 10 students, that's 40 grand. You got 20 students, that's 80 grand. And so, um, let me get my sound effects going here. I could have been hitting that button this whole time. But anyway, you start getting that money in and all of a sudden the government says okay now this year we're going to add some provisos a few addendums a couple of quid pro quos now we're going to give you twice as much money this year but you must include in your teaching material as much information about evolution as you do creation And you know what? Some of the schools that do it. So what I'm saying to you is, while you're getting uh, a government welfare check or whatever it is, just be prepared one of these days to turn the check back in and say, I'm sorry, I can't take this. You're requiring something out of me that I'm not able to give and I'm not going to give. And so I remember there was back when Michelle Obama instituted this um, new school lunch menu. My mom was working at at a public school cafeteria for kindergarten, first grade. She was working in that cafeteria and she said, Mike, these kids are throwing this stuff out. They get a tray. They look at it. They nibble with it. They take it and they throw it in the trash. She said, they're not eating this stuff. Nobody is. And, and I said, well, why, did, why does the school take it? She said, because they're getting it subsidized. The government's paying for it. They don't have to pay the bill for the food to feed the kids at lunch. There was a couple of schools, God bless them, that didn't like that new program. And they said, you know what? We're going to come up with money in our budget. We're going to buy the food that our kids will eat. And, and Michelle can stuff it. And uh, she can eat this food herself because we're not buying it. And you can't make us because we're not using government money. And I went. (laughs) And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Okay. That's just that's just the. That's just the tip of the iceberg of things of addictions. Now. I'm not going to go. Into next week's sermon. I'm going to visit last week's message. And this is 
to help everybody. Maybe you're, let me say this, and I don't think I covered this. Maybe, maybe you want to serve God. You really want to live for God. You want to go to church. Or you want to you attend online with us. But your family, they call you crazy. They call you insane. Uh, you're nuts following that guy. Um, well, you got to go to church all the time. I'm just as good a person as you are, and I don't go to church anywhere. And people get in bondage to relatives. Bondage to relatives. I'm going to show you a verse. Boy, oh boy. I don't have this in my notes. But it speaks to being in bondage to relatives. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6. If thy brother the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is is thy own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are around about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him. Neither shalt thou I pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. But thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he has sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. There you go. That's your relatives. And some of you are. You're in bondage to your relatives. You might as well just shake your head. Yep. Pastor Mike, you're right. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I feel bad for you. I do. Like I would feel for anybody who's addicted to anything. You just happen to be addicted to being favored by your kinfolk. You want them to like you. You want them to love you. You want to get along at the family get-togethers and the family dinners and the funerals and everything else. Family reunions. And so... They control the conversation always. They, you don't talk to them about the Lord. You don't talk to them about what's going on in this world. You, you can't. Because they might think you're crazy. They might think you're insane. They won't, in fact, they won't invite you over anymore. And you're, you're, you're addicted to family relations. Jesus said it. He said, if you love father, mother, brother, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if you love them more than you love me, you are not fit to be my disciple. It's pretty strong words. 
coming from the Savior of all mankind. Those are pretty strong words. So now, here's people. Um, the reason why addictions abound in this country, in our communities, in our cities, in our towns, in our churches, in our colleges. I, I got addicted when I was in college. I got addicted to student body favor. I wanted to be somebody that everybody on campus looked up to and liked. And by the time I was a junior, I had pretty much achieved that. I was a student body chaplain. And a lot of people came to me and, and wanted me to counsel with them. And I tried as best as I could to help them. They were all my friends. And I compromised. See, that's what it'll do. You'll have to compromise something. You're going to have to give up. You're going to have to give up something you believe in in order to keep fellowshipping with these people. You're going to have to give it up because they're going to make you. Listen, they're not going to tolerate you bringing out a Bible for Thanksgiving dinner and reading some story out of the Bible. They're not going to tolerate that. So you're just going to let it go. Now, the children of Israel were fruitful. The devil doesn't want us being fruitful. He does not want that. Being fruitful is a sign that you are born again. You are bearing, not creating, not generating. You are bearing the fruits of the Spirit. God called us to bear that fruit, not produce it. And so it shows that you are in God's graces, in His blessing. When God is producing and you're bearing the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Well, the devil doesn't like that. He cannot have that because he wants a total annihilation of everything that is Christ. And we are of Christ. We are his body. We are his bone. We are, we are the body of Christ. And the devil wants that destroyed. He cannot have Christ around any longer. So he seeks to put God's people in chains of bondage. So verse 11, therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. You're doing the devil's work. When you get high or you get drunk or whatever it is you do, you are doing the devil's work. You're building his kingdom. may not think of it that way, but you are. When they, when they figured out, when Samson told the truth about what happens when his hair gets cut, what did they have him doing? 
They had him hooked up to a grinding wheel, a mill, walking around in a circle like an ox, grinding their corn for them. He's doing their work. He is directly benefiting the Philistines is what he's doing. And with every bottle of liquor that you buy, you're benefiting the alcohol business, the industry. With every bag of marijuana, you're helping to support that industry. With nearly everything you do, you are benefiting the, the evildoers, directly or indirectly. You're benefiting them. And you are not bringing any benefit to the kingdom of God. None. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, it is therefore good for nothing. Good for nothing. So therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. Gave them addictions. And, and gave them sins. And they built for Pharaoh, Trezor, cities, Python, and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Hey, since, I mean, I tried to cover a lot of ground with what I just showed you. To let you know that this includes practically everybody. I, I don't know of anybody who isn't in one way hooked on something that the devil has to offer them. I mean, there, there's always a sin. There's always a recurring sin. So, um, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage you see it's like i said a while ago when you're taking 10 percocet 100 milligrams of percocet when you're taking that you've got 10 doses now to last you a month and you're going to run out and when you do, you're going to be bitter. You're going to wish you were dead. That's how bad the withdrawals can be. You wish you were dead. Okay? And that's that way... Let's let's say that let's say that you um, let's say that you seek approval from people, and and everything that you do, you're trying to get noticed by the people 
closest to you that you really like and you really favor them and you want them to be your friends and your pals and things like that. And I've seen people where if, if the people that they're addicted to, if they don't call them that day, that person's a miserable wreck. They're thinking, well, they don't love me. They don't, love, they don't want anything to do with me. They if they did, they would call me. See, it just it makes you bitter. Being hooked on alcohol, drugs, sex, doesn't matter. Whatever it is that you're addicted to, whatever it is you're hooked on, whatever sins that you commit, when they're taken away from you, man, you just, you just I'm just, there's no, re- there's no reason for me to live. I, I got somebody in our family that, um, and I'm talking extended family. They used to call and ask for money all the time. Well, we knew, we knew what they were going to use the money for. They were going to go out and get high with it. And so I'd tell them no. Other people would tell them no. And then they would do this. Well, I'm just going to kill myself then. They did that all the time. Now, with some people, that would cause them to fork over some money. Oh, I don't want you to kill yourself. You don't need to kill yourself. But I'll be honest with you. When they, when they pulled that on me, I just I would hang up the phone. I would say, I love you. I'm praying for you, but I'm not giving you any money. And I'm like, they're not going to kill themselves. They don't. They never did. But that was something that they would use to try to get people to give them what they want. What kind of life is that, people? What kind of life is that that you're living? Where if you don't get the sin thing that you want, the high from, from your sin, whatever it is, that if you can't get it, well, then you're just bitter. And you make everybody around you bitter. Man. Um, now, the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. God knows what you're going through. God has a remedy for it. He is the one who wants to set the captives free. So he says, I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Christ is the man of sorrows. He knows our afflictions. He knows what it's like. He went without food for 40 days. I'm pretty sure he gets it. And I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Egypt is where you are right now. You're hooked on drugs. You're hooked on, 
you're hooked on uh, internet stuff, and you don't want to be. Okay, that's a good place to be. Is in Egypt, but you don't want to be. And then you have to come to the conclusion that no matter how difficult it may be for me to leave Egypt, I'm, I can't live here another day. I can't do it. And so you don't. You just say, I'm, I'm, this is it. I've had it. I can go no further. My brother-in-law, Steve, who built this room for me, who's now in heaven, said, Mike, after a while of doing drugs, you find out that the drugs are doing you. And I know what he meant by that. The drugs controlled him. The drugs made him do what he did to keep the drugs coming in. They're in charge, and you're not. And, and I'll tell you this, if, if you think that just by, if I just think positive things now, this is what I, this is what I saw on Facebook. I saw a meme on Facebook, and I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to think positive things. I'm going to say to myself, you're not an addict. You're not an addict. You're not hooked on this. You're not hooked on that. And then by saying that, I'm recreating the universe in my own fashion so that I am no longer addicted because I thought that. That won't work. That's a lie. That's a, that's a setup that the devil sent people to try to con you into that lie so that when it doesn't work and you fail miserably and you fall right back into the stuff, only worse now, you'll give up trying to quit. The devil, the devil will send a bunch of self-help people to you and convince you that all you have to do is tell yourself 20 times a day, I'm not an addict, I'm not an addict, I'm not an addict. But see, you're lying 20 times a day. You're lying because you are an addict. You are hooked on this stuff or that thing or this person over here or And God, God don't want you lying about it. If you are, you are. And there's no sense trying to cover it up with all your positive confessions. That is a setup to a greater fall than you've ever had in your life. Um, now, oh, so Egypt is where you are. Canaan land is a land flowing with milk and honey. Canaan land does not have drugs. Canaan land does not have liquor. Canaan land does not have fornication. It doesn't have uh, uh, 
porn websites at it? Nothing. Canaan land is a land of absolute freedom from all addictions, afflictions, sins. It's the place where they don't exist. And it's the place that God wants to bring you there. Now, don't plan on going there by yourself and saying, well, I don't really need God to help me with this. I know how to do this. You, you don't know where to go. You have no idea where it is. God is going to make you follow him or you're not going. Okay? Now, let me get past this here. That's the founding fathers. So we are the pilgrims. That's us. Now, uh, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out into his brethren and looked into their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting in Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did wrong, wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Stephen recited this story in Acts chapter 7, the Bible says, um, verse, uh, verse 25, For he supposed, Moses supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. God has tried to send you help, but you didn't want it. You wanted nothing to do with it. Then it says down here, uh, when Moses, Moses killed the Egyptian that day, and he, and he thought, well, once they see me do that, they're going to think I'm their champion, and they're going to say, hey, Moses, can you get us out of this bondage? But that's not what happened. So the next day, uh, when he would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do, you, why do you do wrong to one another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Would thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? God tried to stop you. He sent help. You didn't want it. You didn't want it. In fact, you got mad at the preacher or your wife or your husband or your kids or your mom and dad or your neighbor or your friend. You got mad at them because they were trying to tell you, hey, listen, you've got a problem. And I want to help you. But you look at him and say, well, who made you my judge, huh? What about your own? Why don't you go fix your own problems and I'll worry about mine? Did you know, do you not remember that when, when Christ laid down rules for us on how to treat one another when we know that Somebody that we know as a Christian 
falls into sin. And we know it. We know they did it. Christ tells us to go to you. Put our arms around you and say to you, listen, I love you. But I know what you did. Okay, and listen. No judgment here. I'm, you're no worse than anybody I know, and you're no worse than me. But I'm coming to you because I think I know you well enough to know that that's not who you want to be. And I'm here to pray with you and to ask for God's forgiveness if you'll repent. But see, your, your, your job there is to try to restore them. Not push them away. And so they can either respond to that and say, I know God sent you. I know he did. And I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. God, will you forgive me? And that person, you and him or you and her will pray right then and there. And as far as God is concerned, that's it. It stops right there. I don't care if the whole church finds out about it. They had no business even knowing about it because it was dealt with. There was repentance and it was over with. And I've had people leave this church because they found out something about somebody here. And that person had already come to me and confessed it and we prayed and God forgave it. Well, they're like. I don't see how Pastor Mike lets them even come to church anymore. And I'm going, wait a minute. Who do we make church for? Sick people or people that never get sick? This is a hospital. This is not a country club for the elite. This is a place of healing and deliverance. Mm. Boy, I'm, and I'm, I had a pastor tell me he had a man in his church that he would always find out what somebody in the church did. And he was always going to the pastor saying, Pastor, don't you think we need to invoke church discipline on them? In other words, go right to the very end of what Christ said, that if they won't repent after the first witness, after the second witness, you bring them before the church. And he said this guy was always coming to me saying, well, Pastor, did you hear about so-and-so and what they did? Yeah. Well, don't you think we ought to have church discipline on them? In other words, put them out. Put them out. They did wrong. They had no business here. Put them out. And then you have to get rid of the whole church. Because at some point, everybody in that church is going to do something wrong somewhere. So, people, I'm telling you, there's help. There's help for people that want it. But then there's always people. Maybe they just haven't. Maybe they're not. They haven't sinned enough. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they're just not ready to be out of bondage yet. That's a shame. That is a shame. So... Um, 
pray for the pray for the rest of this message. I'm not going to give you anything. Th- I'm not going to be here Thursday. I'm going to be. Looking forward to it. But pray for this message that's coming up, okay? People need to hear it. I need to hear it. I need to preach it. Amen? Hey, I love you. You're the reason why we do what we do. Keep us in your prayers. Pray for Kenya. Um, kind of got to where we can only do one feeding a month uh, because it's so expensive. And so just pray that uh, we'll be able to continue to do that. All right? I love you. We'll see you tomorrow night.